welcome to episode four of the second series of Walking Between Worlds. Um, we're shifting gears today. So the first three episodes have been um, mostly breaking down some more complicated theoretical uh, topics. We talked about um, status in our last episode with Lauren Wells. Um, we talked about dominant culture with Mark Hedinger. Um this episode, we're going to dive into one of the many facets of identity. Yeah, and even though I've enjoyed the, the first few episodes and how like deep we've dug into these concepts, it's really cool now to be able to take what we've learned and talk to people about their experiences and kind of the hands-on, already applied versions of these topics. Um, you know, we got guests that have a, just a lot of different life experiences, mm-hmm. and they, they bring a lot to the table, especially today with um, having... Our guests, um, Debs and Dan Vaughn, uh, talk about social economic status and some of the things that they've gone through. Mm-hmm. It's going to be really cool to, to dig a little bit deep into like what social economic status even is, mm-hmm. but overall really just focusing on what have they experienced. Yeah. When we went about choosing our guests, it really it didn't have a whole lot to do with education level or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the level of prestige they brought to the table, but really, like, these are people that have real life, uh, just crazy stories, a lot of them, on yeah. how these parts of their identity have played out, um, maybe differently than the world says they should, um, and yet they, um, they've still led just such rich lives, and so their mm. stories are absolutely worth hearing, they're worth talking about, um, so... We have Dan and Debs on today to talk about socioeconomic status, which in, from my point of view, I would say it's kind of the, the way we define class in America. So, you know, the amount of money you have, you have lower mm. class, you have middle class, you right. have upper class, um, and those can be broken down. There's different tax breaks for people who make certain amounts of money. So it is a, a large way of... Uh, it's, it's one of the largest divisions that we have in America among different people. Um, and yet it's such an intimate thing to talk about. It is, yeah. And I think um, we, we see it becoming a little less intimate with some of the, the pushes in the last few years. I mean, it seems like every year that there's a certain tech company that has a huge leak publishing of what their, their executives and all their staff make. Um, and that's the kind of what's the word transparency that other companies are just adopting in general mm-hmm. um so it's kind of cool to see some of the changes but also um yeah there's a divide that that happens between all of those different classes and it's more than just a cultural divide it's it's kind of one that's kind of built into the system almost when you talk about tax breaks and how much people make and mm-hmm. you usually hang out with the people in your same class it seems like for the most part yeah just because I mean, I think that's a culture side of it, though, is because mm-hmm. you enjoy the same things that you can afford and those right. things, you know, choose, make your decisions and make, decide, you know, what circles you're in. Right. Like, I can't be living in poverty and decide that, you know, for my side hobby, I want to collect uh, boats, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, or, or be a, a professional golfer. Like, right. I, I can't. I can't be living in poverty and be part of a country club, you know, yeah. like that's not how I'm going to be spending my weekends. Mm-hmm. So in large part, you're 
socioeconomic status does inform the kind of lifestyle that you can live. Yeah. And so in that way, yeah, in large part, people do congregate with those who make a similar amount of money than they do. Hmm. I feel like there's a lot of self-help books and self-help finance things in America right now. I feel like that's a huge thing, um, Mm -hmm. especially in the Christian conservative culture. Um, yeah. You see that being a huge thing, you know, being free from debt, being free from all these things. And um, I don't know, I, I'm just excited to, I don't know, I just feel like it's not as simple as that. You know, I think Jesus gives us very specific ways of how we should um, deal with money, how we should think about money. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, Dan and Debs, you know, they have a very different story than most people do. And it's very unique. It's not a, it's not a straight line to the top it's not yeah not at all and some i feel like uh with those self-help books that you're talking about a lot Mm -hmm. of them frame it in a way where it's like well you might be starting here but if you set this goal and you meet this expectation and you save this much you'll be on your way to the top right which is very american very western super american yeah um but and i read a book recently actually within yeah within the last six months it's called jesus's terrible financial advice yeah and it's literally talking about every conversation that Jesus has about money and how opposite it is to the way that we approach money as Americans. Yeah. So their story in large part shows the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. Um, they're very generous people and you know, it's easy to idolize money and they're not the kind of people that do that, which is really cool. So it is. Yeah. Without further ado, here's Dana and Debs. Um, I am a builder. I've been doing it for about 30 years now. Wow. You started when you were 16? My first house when I was 16, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, from scratch? Like built your first house? My dad and I built like our first, first house. house. Well, <laughs> I, that I was didn't know that. That wow. was my, my dad's move to getting out of debt. So what? he saved up money for that, and then we started and we built everything ourselves. We had people come in and help us and teach us all the aspects of it, and then... Mm. built it from the ground up so it took Whoa. us about a year and a half i think mm-hmm. but it was a good experience fun 16 yeah mm-hmm. and i'm devs and um i was a private music teacher and worked at an art school for about 12 years i have my bachelor's in music and then for the last six years i've been working as an account specialist for simple pin media which is a pinterest marketing company that actually was birthed during the recession from a friend of mine, dear friend, Kate All, she's amazing, um, when both our husbands were unemployed. So I've heard you and Maddie both talk about, your daughter Madison, both mm-hmm. talk about Simple Pin mm-hmm. Media. What, is, what does that actually do? Like what? Mm. We work with bloggers and we manage their Pinterest accounts so that we can funnel um, traffic to their blogs so that they can monetize yeah. on that. So we basically help them okay. make money. So we come in, we understand analytics, we understand... Um, how they can tweak their images, mm-hmm. you know, maybe their keywords aren't quite right. Mm. So, um, so like I have, for example, right now I have five accounts. So I work with five different bloggers and all I do as an account specialist is work one-on-one with them. Mm. Huh. Mm-hmm. And I schedule out all of their content every day so they don't have to do it. We take care of it for them. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
that can get exhausting. I mean, doing social media, mm, like yeah. planning it out every week. It's like it's a bizarre job. It is weird. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. But I love it. And it still taps into my creative side. Yes. So that that sounds like quite the creative outlet yeah. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It can be mind numbing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talk about analytics, so yeah, yeah. definitely. That's gotta be. Yeah. Yep. Mm. So, so we want to talk about your guys' personal experience and your story. Um which does span over quite a long time, mm-hmm. um, especially the last, what, like 10, ten years ten years or mm-hmm. so. Um, but starting way, way, way back, what were some of the things that your parents taught you about money and how to manage it um, that maybe impacted the way that you then managed it um, as adults and mm-hmm. um, the way that you saw your career um, going through your life? I'll start. Um, I think, well, previous to third grade, my parents did everything the way everyone normally does, which is borrow money to go into business or borrow money to buy your house and, and get into debt. And so they had a house and they tried to start their own business and um, they got to a point where they were just kind of barely keeping their head above the water. And so decided that they needed a fresh start. So they sold the business, they let the bank take the house, and they left town and decided to start from scratch with just the money they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, he, my dad started a um, clothing store up in Coeur d'Alene. Mm-hmm. And um, once that got up and running, he actually opened a second one because it was getting enough, wow. enough business. So, um, But at that point, he started... Everything that he did was on a cash basis. So when he had the money, then he would do, mm. you know, he would purchase something or, um, but he decided that he had to get out of debt. And so from there, it was all about trying to save up money for their own house or trying to save up money for purchasing a car or whatever it was you needed instead of using credit. Mm, yeah. So the way, the way I grew up, after my dad passed on, He studied the Bible and took from it that he was supposed to be wise with his money Mm -hmm. and a good steward of his money. And so he took that and looked at what he thought were the best ways to manage money and not just throw money away. So um, it was, you know, not buying new cars, always waiting for about three years and then purchasing a car. So you're not losing the value of the car right off the lot. not buying things until you had money saved up to buy that thing. Um, and then only buying really what you need. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. There were a couple of times I saw them being generous with money, but uh-huh. at the same time, I, I kind of felt like they were working so hard to save up money to get to a certain place in life that I didn't see a lot of the, the giving part of that. Yeah. And I don't know that they weren't, it's just that they weren't communicating it with the kids. So mm. when you say like they only bought what they needed, that means different things for different people. So like, mm. are you just saying they'd never bought anything new or nice or they just bought the bare essentials and that was it? <laughs> oh, I, I have a hard time saying that mm. we've ever bought anything brand new. Um, so 
along with my dad always using cash when he'd saved up money, it was also uh -huh. doing a lot of trading. Uh -huh. Different barter systems that okay. were in place, um, especially in the 80s and 90s. Uh, different groups, you could literally trade your, whatever your business was selling um, or whatever service you provided, you could actually trade another business for whatever they had if you needed something. And we got a lot of our stuff that way. We traded for cars getting fixed mm -hmm. um, and, you know, cleaning services and all kinds of stuff. So, um, so, you know, when your kids say, well, I really need a PlayStation, um, <laughs> that, that was not at the top of my dad's list. We didn't get PlayStations. Okay. Um, it was, you know, more of go find something to do that uses your imagination. So it was, mm -hmm. and he always wanted us to be outside. He didn't want us to be inside sitting around. So it was always, you know, hey, go ride your bike, go play with your friends, go do something else. So I may have gotten a new bike. Oh, I think. Fancy. <laughs> the question is, did you get the um, store brand toilet paper or did you get Charmin? Okay, that's the real <laughs> That's the real test I right there. Don't actually remember. Okay. <laughs> toilet paper. Yeah. I don't I don't know what my parents bought. I come from a pastor's home, and so we never really um, had a lot of money growing up. Um, my mom is incredibly um, creative and would make everything, and she's unbelievably talented. So she would literally sew me the most incredible clothes, and it didn't hurt that I was like six feet tall and like 110 pounds with huge feet, and like nothing fit me in the, the 80s. So she would sew me the cutest outfits though um and she was a great gardener and canner and cook and so like i feel like the way we grew up was was very rich because mm -hmm. she lavished on us in ways that we could afford um and we were always taught that the lord will provide period and that whatever the future was for us in whatever career, you don't pursue something for the finances. You pursue something because God's going to call you into a place where you can have relationship with people and impact their lives. And that was the basis of, of how we grew up. And um, they would say, you can do anything. Like, you guys are totally capable of doing anything. And my dad would always say I was going to be the president of the United States, which I really wouldn't want to be. But at the time, I knew what he was trying to instill in me, that I had the capacity to be able mm -hmm. to do anything, but that I needed to go, I needed to do something that, where the Lord wanted to use me. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about making money. It was about something greater and bigger than that. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember ever feeling like we didn't have things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except cool clothes. Yeah. <laughs> In junior high. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, my mom made everything. So, <laughs> yes, that would be really cool now. Yeah, it's like it would. Come back around where it's like not that would be the best thing. <laughs> not so much. Um, I just think that's a really different way to look at jobs and careers. Just mm -hmm. here in particular, because mm -hmm. so often it's like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. Blah blah blah, and. A lot of the times it's kind of mm -hmm. pushed at kids that they need to strive for the higher paying jobs mm -hmm. um, or especially in a lot of like um, first generation Asian American families. Mm -hmm. um, I had friends that were just stressed to the point of having breakdowns because of how hard their parents pushed them to get a, well, a good paying job. Mm -hmm. 
So that's a very different mm-hmm. upbringing. We realized that with our, we have four kids. We have two that are older and then we have um, a set that are younger. And we realized that with our older kids, we would always say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Not realizing that the weight behind that. Mm. Um, and I've now never asked that of my younger two. Um, I will call out qualities about them that I see mm-hmm. that are going to be amazing, you know, as they get older, their persistence or their, you know, being clever, um, their problem solving skills. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, wow, like you have amazing, you know, persistence. And that is going to be an awesome thing for you with whatever job you go into, mm-hmm. into the future. It's just a completely because when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? That's literally you're having them take on an identity. Yeah. 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 As opposed to this, these are the qualities God's given you. Mm-hmm. And he can use it in a really amazing way. Yeah. And that's really freeing to hear as a kid, as opposed to what do you want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, right. what if I just want to be this person with this characteristics and that's all I need to be? Right. And that's the core rather than. Yeah, the, the focus career. yeah isn't on the career or the job mm-hmm. yeah it's on who who you are as a person and the the, mm-hmm. the qualities that mm-hmm. that you have that you can develop instead of mm-hmm. the skills i guess even too because mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah there's skills too yeah um my kids are very musical they're mm-hmm. all very musical and i'm like you're very musical i don't know how you're going to use it yeah you'll use it somehow but that creativity is what's going to be tapped into mm-hmm. and your persistence and your practicing you know, the skills that you you, you wow. learn through that as a teacher obviously i'm big on that yeah. um you're gonna learn skills for any future job that you have or career that you have mm-hmm. yep and that's super true mm-hmm. it is yeah I mean, I remember being asked that, and I, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, constantly as a kid, and I always wanted to be a race car driver. And, so cool. Yeah. But, I mean, I work behind a desk, so that, that, <laughs> that didn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be want to be a race car driver now. <laughs> things change. But, yeah, no, that, that's really cool. I think I might bring that into my own parenting. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Our 16-year-old. He wanted to be the ice cream man, and he said that for years, and now he's lactose so intolerant. Oh, no. <laughs> so, like, that's not going to work out for you. <laughs> but he could be a non-dairy ice yeah. cream man. He it could is, be vegan. Like, hello. He could be sorbet. <laughs> it's sorbet. The sorbet, sorbet man. It still has lactose in it. Does it? No. Yes. <laughs> what? Some of it does, yeah. Mm. <laughs> it's a sad life. Then. <laughs> <laughs> When I was in, just to preface, my, I have a really strong lifelong friendship with your guys' daughter. Yes. Just so our audience is aware of that. Yes. But when we were in, what, like first grade yeah. or something like that, uh, you guys moved to Prineville. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm always going to remember that yes. because I didn't get to see my best friend on church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that move and what led up to that? Um, well, back to building. Uh, my dad and I were building here in Portland, um, leading up to that. Um, and actually, uh, a lot of people were building at the time. I mean, building at that time was going like crazy. And so a lot of lots in Portland were disappearing. And because Mm -hmm. of that, the existing lots were all going up in price. And, um, so 
we were having a hard time finding lots. And so my parents, my dad, well, I should say my dad, always wanted to move to Central Oregon. Um, he'd visited a few times and had friends over in Central Oregon. And so he'd spend time over there talking with them and finally came across this piece of property over in Prineville. And so um, because we couldn't find property here, we started looking at that piece um, as a possible investment option. And while we were talking about that, then Deborah and I started praying about whether or not that was a possibility for us. Because mm-hmm. um, it meant uprooting the whole family. It meant yeah. moving away from everyone, um, from church, from family and friends, from everybody, uh, to a place where we knew nobody. and. It was a small town mentality. So, mm-hmm. um, so we prayed about it, and I don't remember how long, though. It took me about a year because um, he would drive back and forth four days. He'd be gone four days a week and then be home for three. And at the time, we only had two kids. Um, so Maddie was, like, kindergarten, and Ethan was, like, two. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would stay home single mom and then he'd come home and that was really hard on the family but I was not going to move like I went kicking and screaming but I knew (laughs) that I wanted to be wherever God wanted our family and so I prayed and prayed and prayed and it took about a year for confirmation from the Lord and I had total peace about the move and so that was when we moved it was about a year and a half by the time we actually packed up and left Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I drove back and forth from Portland for about a year and a half. A year and a half. Oh, wow. um, getting the development built and then our house started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then building a shop that we could move into while I finished the house. My so. biggest thing was I didn't want to make a decision based on money and I didn't want to make a decision based on fear. Mm. So I needed, and Dan was incredibly patient for me. To hear from the Lord and feel peace about the move because I knew whatever decision we ended up making that it would impact our children for life. And so I wanted to make sure that we were being obedient. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, we did make the right decision. And it was hard, but we did it. <laughs> so we moved. I, on the other hand, was moving for money. Yep. Um, <laughs> Hoping for that yes answer from the Lord to tell me it's okay to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because there was, there was no place to build here. And so mm-hmm. my dad taking the company over there meant I either had to find another job here mm-hmm. in Portland or I had to go and start working with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still prayed about it because I wanted, I didn't want to just go for money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we got the answer of, you know, yes, it's the right idea to move. I assumed that was a yes for everything that was in my, my head, which was yes for the money and yes for the, you know, big subdivision development that's going to turn into this great, awesome thing and all that. Um, and so it was a little bit easier for me. I was coming from a standpoint of trying to provide for my family and no options in Portland. So, and, and to preface that too, you had been taught very wisely by your dad to have a five, 10 and 15 year plan and Mm. that you want to be thinking ahead about your future. And that was really what you were doing. 
Right. You were looking at, okay, if we do, if we're here for eight years, I think that was the number you gave me. If we can do this for eight years, then we're going to make X amount of money and then we'll right. be debt free. We'll have a house free and clear. And then we can move back mm -hmm. to Portland. And that had always been our quote unquote plan. Well, we started with the one in Orchard Lake and that was our mm -hmm. first house. That was the mm -hmm. first, yeah. the first in a, in a plan of three or four houses. Mm -hmm. And by the time you'd roll them all over, the last mm -hmm. one would be free and clear and you'd be done. And okay. it was a wise investment. Uh -huh. yeah. So yeah. we had been Well, wise. up until 2008, it was <laughs> it, real estate for the most part was yeah. the one and only thing that had never actually gone down in value. Right. That had always increased in value. And that was the one thing my dad said, you know, was one of the things you can, you know, buying a house is not technically getting into debt because as things are always going up in value, you can sell that house for more than what you borrowed to buy it originally. Mm -hmm. um, so that was our plan was to just keep that process going, you know, live in a house for two to three years, roll it over, build another one, mm -hmm. take the money, roll it in and, and mm -hmm. keep doing it until we had finally paid off a whole house. Mm -hmm. wow. So we lived there for about a year and a half. And money was good and things were looking good and the plan was mm -hmm. good. We missed our friends and um, we loved having you guys visit. Those were my best memories. Literally was ours too. <laughs> and driving down to Prineville to stay. Literally the best. And our house before we moved was kind of like the hub of the social circle. And when we moved there, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to have this. But we would have your family would just show up or friends would just show other friends would just show up. And so I would have food. I remember always shopping and making sure I had enough food for like a group of people yeah. if they were to just show up at my door. <laughs> so I love entertaining, which kind of ties into later in the our loss period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it was such a highlight for us. I love that. I love those memories. Um, but then... About a year and a half into it, that was when 2008's famous recession hit. Mm. And it hit fast for us. Like, I feel like it unraveled very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the hard part of, of Prineville, too, and, and I didn't notice it at the time because I was working... Uh, 16 hours a day. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And weekends. Yeah. So... Mm. I was working so much that I really wasn't seeing or paying attention to what was, what was going on with the family. I mean, I would hear about the things that happened at school or happened with, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really a, a part of it since I was so busy trying to build what was going on in Bryanville. So, yeah. so when 2008 happened, we basically, I mean, we had houses that were already built and they were on the market and we were trying to sell mm -hmm. and then all this hit and we tried eking, you know, eking it out for a little while. And then my dad, you know, finally came to us and said, you know, this is the last paycheck for, this is, this is the last paycheck I can give you. So, um, mm -hmm. we got to find something else you can do in the meantime. So, um, I tried looking for jobs in Prineville, Redmond, um, something that would keep us there because we were yeah. trying to keep the house. We were set on at least maintaining the payments since mm -hmm. we had chosen to get into, to get into this. So, mm -hmm. um, but looked for jobs, uh, finally was basically just searching Craigslist like crazy and came across a job in Portland that sounded good. So I sent the guy a message. He, we set up an interview. I drove over right away, interviewed with the guy and 
it was a good fit. So mm. um, I told him it'd take us about two weeks yeah, we to get over to Portland. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said that was fine. He wasn't going to be starting the job until then. So it'd be, yeah. be great. Yeah. So we did. I came back home from that and we uh, packed it up. So mm-hmm. I still don't know why, how. We told In two the weeks, kids, actually. Well, it's so fast. We went, so, yeah, we packed really, my mom came over yeah. and helped us pack, but we told the kids that they could each take one box from their bedroom. Mm-hmm. And because we were moving in with my parents, bless their amazing hearts, um, they took us in. And I just found out I was pregnant with our third um, at the time. And we had had a period of miscarriages and infertility so that was like a miracle in and of itself so my head was just spinning that we were going to have a third child we weren't really thinking it was going to happen um and we told the kids they get one box of toys everything else got packed up and so we we moved from a how big was our house 3900 mm-hmm. does that count the pole barn no and it was full of lots of stuff so we had lived in excess <laughs> <laughs> and we moved into my parents' home, which is, I think, 2,700, and we took the upstairs. So we cut, I mean, you cut that in half, and that was our living space. And we are still there 11 years later, and we wouldn't have it any other way. It's been amazing. But a shock it was a process. Mm. And my stuff is still packed after 11 years, and I don't even Jeez. care. Like, mm. it's just stuff. You, yeah. you end up. You go through that grieving period and then you end up realizing it's literally not worth anything. And if I could just light a match, I would, mm. but I know better because <laughs> there are treasures in there, like cute little notes that Kylie wrote Maddie. Oh, <laughs> gotta keep those. Definitely keep those. Um, but yeah, we moved to Portland at that point, um, kind of head spinning and we kept making payments on our house for a year. Um, people thought that was crazy, but we knew we had gotten ourselves into debt and we wanted to have a clear conscience before the Lord. It was our debt. We had money. We were responsible. So we drained ourselves dry during that period of time. Um, but I don't feel guilty. Like, I feel totally good about that. We spent that, well, in, until we ran out of money, but basically mm-hmm. trying to make payments on the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, tried to sell the house, put it on the market, mm-hmm. um, couldn't sell it. And then, of course, when we couldn't make payments anymore, then the bank wanted to repo the house. So mm-hmm. um, we ended up filing bankruptcy, actually for the sole purpose of just pushing the bank off our backs for six to nine months, yeah. while we still tried to sell the house. Um, so I could at least pay back the loan that we borrowed to build it. And I owed my dad some money for building the pole barn because that was the company office. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did that. Um, but yeah, we went, we I had my job ended the beginning of 2009, 2009 and basically was on unemployment, but still had money left over from the construction job I had just done. So we just used all that money to keep making payments. $1,800 a month every you know, month mm-hmm. until it was all gone. Mm. Um, and by that time, we didn't sell the house and Mm-mm. the bank took it. And mm. so. So then we went through a very long period of loss. 
that was kind of the beginning <clears throat> of the of the several years it went on for a long time um and i think that was the that was the way i see it is the stripping away period for us mm. um when i had our our third born avery um i almost died um with a condition that they didn't know was going to be there and so my recovery was extremely long and thankfully we were living with my parents so my mom literally had to like make the kids lunches get them up and take them to school because i was way too weak and um yeah it was a really long period of time so for me i landed in a space of um i was a housewife with no house all of my belongings were packed up um which you don't think you're going to be emotional about it but then like when christmas comes around i remember just crying and i couldn't go into a christmas store which sounds ridiculous now, but at the time it was a part of the grieving process mm-hmm. and going, I can't even find my kids stockings. You know, the mm-hmm. things, the, the ornaments that they had made me grow, like when they were really small, I couldn't even find those. They were all packed somewhere mm-hmm. in another city. Um, total side note. <laughs> but um, th- then I had a very um, clingy baby. So even when I would come to church, I couldn't leave her. She had to stay Mm -hmm. with me. Um, And so I would basically hang out in the nursery because she would just cry a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm a musician. So it was really hard for me to find any kind of outlet because I couldn't, I could not physically get myself to church to be able to do music. It was just too hard on me um, physically. So I didn't have my musical outlet and I wasn't working. I didn't have work. And um, I just remember feeling like I was floating in space and I had nowhere for my feet to land. Everything that I thought had defined me, good things, um, and they weren't worldly things, was gone. And so I felt like I had nowhere to actually land. And that, was, that lasted for a very long time, actually. Mm-hmm. Had to really go through a long period of time of grieving through that. The question of, okay, so we obeyed God. Why is he stripping me away of everything that is good? Mm. Why is God stripping away relationships? Because there were relationships that were broken. Why? I'm an entertainer. Like, I have the Mm. gift of hospitality. I can't even exercise my gift of hospitality. I I love doing that. Mm. Um, These are all good things. Mm -hmm. I was the place where all the neighbor kids would hang out. Mm-hmm. I can't reach out to the neighbor. I mean, I, I do now, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it took me a very, very long time to, um, I couldn't use my music ministry. Yeah. I just didn't, it was just hard. Everything that I thought was good right. was, felt like it was gone. And for you, what was that like being unemployed? Um, let's see, you got a lot of time on your hands. Uh, <laughs> he made up for last time with the kids. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah, my mm-hmm. my time leaving, like, before we moved to Primeville, that whole year and a half was real hard because I only got to see the kids on the weekends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, then I'm basically just trying to recuperate from the long right. weeks. 
so I kind of missed out on some things in the kids' lives. Um, and then, of course, when we moved to Primeville, I spent the entire time working. You know, I'd mm-hmm. try and spend weekends doing stuff with the kids, but I was usually wasn't a whole lot so different. tired. Yeah. Um, so when I got when I was unemployed, yeah, I had all kinds of time. Um, although <laughs> then then the motivation is getting out of bed because you're yeah you know, somewhat depressed. You know. Yeah. It was odd because the the 2008 crash literally hit my industry. And so yeah. all of a sudden, everything that, I mean, I'd been doing it since I was 16. So everything that I knew how right. to do, everything that, you know, any job that I could do was all construction oriented. And so to not be able, I mean, I couldn't find a job anywhere. And I had grown up with a dad who literally when one job was like, ah, eh, this isn't panning out, it's not making any money. So I'm going to go do this. And he would just switch another job. So I went from building houses and then getting my own license because of working for the other contractor. We, I tried to get my own thing started. We tried remodeling. We tried property management, um, just fixer up stuff. Yeah. I worked for a bank doing foreclosure um, things. I had to go. How ironic. That was shady. I'd I'd have to go in and check if people were living in the house it was because they hadn't made their payments and then i would have to like uh. um shut all the water off and winterize the toilets and but yeah some of it was shady because i have to go by and they like, they want me to peek in the window and see if anyone's there check well. the check the mailbox make sure no mail's coming and they're like what? well it's it's in foreclosure i i did a lot of stuff that i think during that whole time period banks and those people were doing that was a little bit off but yeah. um i think the hardest part though was you you can't provide I mean, I was yeah. on unemployment. We were broke. <laughs> so, so broke. And I could not find a job. And any little extra money that I could get went into trying to basically start my own business. Because that was the one thing my dad taught me was he always wanted us to have the freedom to do other things. Spend more time with your family and your kids. Be able to yeah. leave and go on vacation whenever you wanted. And so being self-employed gave you the freedom to pick up and leave whenever you wanted to. So I tried that. And it wasn't coming as easy for me as it seemed to come for my dad during those times. So, and maybe it's because I only knew construction. It was, yeah. you know, um, mm-hmm. so it was, it was a little hard. It was hard trying to find and or get an answer from God on why everything happened. I mean, I know it was just the economy, so it's not really God's fault, but trying to find out why you're led to a place, you know, if we'd stayed in, Portland, we would have still had a house. Why would he lead you to be destitute? Right. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then lose everything. You lose, we lose the house. We lose any of the profit we made on the other house. Lose your job. Lose, I mean, we lost everything. everything. And so trying to find an answer in that, you know, so what am I supposed to do if you, all the plans, and there again, we're back to that. We made plans based on what was passed on growing up. And so... Yeah. Those plans were shown to be faulty, and that you can't rely on those. Yeah. So I think um, one of the things was living more day to day instead of always trying to look mm-hmm. into the future and hoping that something is going to pan out. And mm-hmm. you know, something like 2008 is not going to happen again. So, um, so I did a lot of soul searching and a lot of talking to God and trying to find out what was next and what the purpose of all that was, you know, what was it that he wanted to teach us coming through that? Mm. Right. So what would you say that is now? Now? Um, 
well, I mean, like, what's going on right now doesn't stress me out. I mean, no. uh-uh. uh, um, and actually, once we got through that time period, God was extremely generous with the jobs he threw my way. Um, mm. Not all of them were great paying, but I think I liked each one of them in their own, their own way. So... always provided for us yeah um and that's where most of our our crazy stories come from with how the lord provided for us and we got to a point when he says we live day to day was um we would literally say to each other we have everything we need for today we don't need anything the lord's provided everything we need for today and we are so grateful for that and so i feel like the gratefulness was missing when we were when things were coming easy. Mm. And so we went through the grieving period and then to see the good gifts around us and knowing that fully trusting in the Lord, he will provide everything that you need. It may not look the way you think it should, but that was an incredible gift for us to learn that thankfulness and that gratefulness. Um, And his relationship with his kids just, completely he was all he's always been a great dad um but i do think in our society workaholics that's like revered mm-hmm. yeah it is yeah. um and there are a lot of kids who suffer because their parents are trying to strive to provide more for them but they're really starving their children in the process of that yeah. of that pursuit so um dan always had his heart was always to do it for his kids. It wasn't really for himself, but they were the ones that missed him. Mm -hmm. So to be able to literally have dad in the house all the time, their, their relationships just completely blossomed into Mm. they're super tight. (laughs) (laughs) And he's still a really, really incredibly hard worker, but I feel like you've learned like your checks and balances. Like this is my hard stop. I need to go home and spend time with the kids. And he's very right. intentional about that now because he saw That's so important. He saw the issues that came up and the damage that really he had to go back through and mm. fix, right? Yes. <laughs> mm. Right, mm. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing you realize is how important relationships are mm-hmm. with friends yeah. and family because, you know, the, the jobs go away and the house go away and everything else goes away, but the, mm. you still have the relationships then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you still... Mm. so have something that'll get you through the most important thing yeah wow yeah Mm -hmm. i think we spend so much time trying to be in control Mm. of the jobs that we have and we imagine it as this like straight up Mm -hmm. journey where it's like we're constantly striving for more and then once we get to more we want more Mm -hmm. you're just going up and up and up and while you're trying to gain control of that you're losing control absolutely of your relationships of your family yeah and I think we're, we're, I mean, we're taught that as Americans, really, you know, because there's always the next best thing, right? Yeah. We're always looking to improve to do the next, what's the next thing? Okay, mm-hmm. we accomplished this, but there's something better still. We, we yeah. can do this. Yeah. And that's not um, a bad thing. And it's, it's not, no. no, I mean, but when you take it to, to the point of workaholism or mm-hmm. like the rise and grind or, you know, the, the work, the, um, mm-hmm. I forget all the, the fun terms that they have these days for, for people who, the hustle culture, that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, uh, that's, yeah, where it gets unhealthy. I mean, 
Um, I think we even do that within our faith sometimes as well, not just we treat it that way. We treat it that way where we always have to have um, a target that we're aiming for instead of just Mm -hmm. focusing in on a relationship or Mm -hmm. uh, on on people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's not a straight line from bottom to Mm -hmm. top. Mm -hmm. And we expect it to be that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just the the part of your guys' story that just hits me the most is, you know, having those identities, you know, of a construction worker, a music teacher, a mom, um, mm-hmm. uh, hos- uh, hospitality, hospitality. Yeah. yeah. That, um, just again, being taken away for that, for that point in time, for that season. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, again, like, especially in America, I feel like those things, what we do is so important to everyone. Like that's such a huge part of, of our personal identities to have that taken away, you know, you do a lot of soul searching, a lot of praying. And I think, I mean, you guys handled it obviously really well, you know, um, I mean, I'm just blown away. Um, but I feel like we're encouraged by society and by culture to, to make those things the most important things and not like our kids or the relationships. You know, we're, we're taught to, I mean, what's the first thing when you meet someone that you usually get asked is, hey, what do you do? Right. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that's always the first question I get asked when I meet someone yep. new. So what do you do? Right. And then you talk to them about your job. You know, what do you do? Oh, you talk about that. And then they get yeah. to tell you, you know, 10 minute, 20 minute conversation. You know, well, that, what happens when that goes away? What happens when that goes <laughs> away though? What do you have? What do you do yeah. at, at that There's point? There's probably that feeling of like shame of like, oh, yeah. I'm not going to measure up to what this person wants to hear right now. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I, I had a friend who was just taking some time. Um, he had some savings. He's taking some time to, to find the job that he wanted. Like that was that was in. It just it blew my mind that he could do that. And I would always be like, Oh, hey, how's it going with the job search? And he'd be like, Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm 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 looking around. I'm waiting. I'm like, How is he so calm about this? <laughs> how, how is he just like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm just looking around. It's like, What? How's that? Like, what is he doing? Well, <laughs> what I, do you do with yourself? I think yeah. there are lots There's, of pieces of shame. That come in different places, whether it's your job, like one of Dan's jobs was to work with low income housing and he would often have to like fix bullet holes or snake mm. toilets. And he never once complained because he knew the Lord had provided that job for him. Yeah. But then I would like go, I remember going to the pediatrician's office and um, the pediatrician asked me like, Hey, like you moved, where are you at right now? And I'm like, Oh, we live. I told him where we lived and, and he's like, huh, it's not like near your parents. I'm like, uh, we actually live with my parents. And I was mortified and I like teared up and he got so excited when I told him I lived with Mm. my parents and I was like literally humiliated to tell people that because at the time that was not a thing. We were Mm. the only people I know of that actually had to move in with family. Now it's the no, like I, it's pretty normal it's now. It's very yeah. normal yeah. now, which yeah. is crazy to me. Um, but I remember how his reaction to me, he was so excited. And he said, do you know that America is the only culture that does not have multi-generational living? Yeah. And it's one of the mm-hmm. healthiest mm-hmm. things you can do for your children. And I'm so excited for you. That was what huh. I needed to have spoken into me because mm-hmm. I was so ashamed. Because mm-hmm. not having a normal living situation, mm-hmm. you are judged by that. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, taking yeah. advantage of your parents. Hmm. And we were judged. Okay. We were judged. <laughs> people did say things. And ironically, some of those people have had to have their kids move in with them. That's kind of funny. Mm. But <laughs> that was a, a piece that was difficult. Mm. Just that you don't yeah. realize. 
yeah is in our culture and you do feel shame yeah. with that well it's back to the whole being asked what you do for a living i mean mm-hmm. when you have to answer um i'm unemployed you know <laughs> right. right i can't find a job so you must be lazy yeah nope <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember part of her Oh, man. Embarrassment over food stamps. Oh, my gosh. Was, uh, oh, yeah. I remember asking her about, oh, I was, like, God. so happy when I saw the little EBT sticker on the outside of Papa Murphy's. Oh, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> honey, we'll use food stamps to get a pizza. She's like, uh-uh. I will never do that. I was Not so mortified. I'm like, I feel like that's being too extravagant. And I actually have to say hmm. that that was hmm. something that came from my growing up. Uh-huh. Because yeah. I was a pastor, raised a pastor's home, people would judge us if we would have nice things. Yes. And so yeah. I've always felt like I don't deserve to have anything nice. And so I'll apologize, like literally say, oh, someone will say, oh, those are cute shoes. I'll be like, I got them on sale. That's my first response even now as an adult. I have to like qualify like, oh, I got these on sale. Really good sale. And I've had a few friends call me out and be like, so I don't care. I just think they're cute. Can't you have nice things? I'm like, well, yeah. That's a loaded question. No, I really don't feel like I can. So then when we were, you know, considered a burden in society's mind, here I am. Mm. Okay, wait. Then I got, forget, we had fertility issues. The doctor said it was impossible for me to have any more children. We ended up pregnant with our fourth. Now imagine I'm like 35 living with my parents. It wasn't an accident. Suddenly pregnant pregnant. with my fourth (laughs) child. And everyone's like, wow, you're like a... Some, like a really unwise teenager and I'm like no we really know what we're doing like, <laughs> I really felt very like I was so worried about being judged mm. and people were awesome honestly it was my own mind um but food stamps I was so thankful for them but I was I remember like so thankful that they had it on a debit card and not on a check anymore because I didn't want people to see it so it was interesting my reaction in that or the other piece of we we're always giving our family's always giving to people so to have people give to us i felt super uncomfortable with that it was very hard for me i i would actually refuse gift cards and anything that people would do to try and help and um i remember a friend of mine who said you know don't rob us of the joy of giving to you guys after all the years that you've given to our family. That was really hard to hear, (laughs) but important. It changed my way of how I give to people and how I interact. Just the sensitivity in that. It's, it's interesting how we make us, we can make assumptions about people based on their economic status when people are just going through our, like, but even their, 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 their work ethic or simple Mm -hmm. things like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a, group pastor's kid as well and that that it, that is definitely that when you're in ministry there's this pressure of not being too extravagant too extravagant or um not taking state support or whatever mm-hmm. it may be yeah i mean i was on food stamps for a while too because i was trying to raise support and that that shame of like well i mean i'm supposed to be working for the lord i'm supposed to be raising money but i need to buy groceries still mm-hmm. and i and i can't but but i should be raising money right that just means i'm not mm-hmm doing what God's called me to do or God, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, but God provides through those different means. And yeah. it's, it's so easy to think, okay, no, it needs to be from money, from a job or from supporters or from, from whatever. It needs ability. to be yes. my own ability when really God's like, well, I got all this other stuff <laughs> I can provide to you. Yeah, you know, right. um, rapper Lecrae talks about how his mom used to have, uh, have to 
used food stamps to provide him meals as a kid but now he gives the government bread because mm. he's paying back the words um mm-hmm. that we hear and i was like okay wow that's that's such a cool picture yep. right there of that you know i mean it's mm-hmm. a circle it really is yeah and there, there there's no shame in that no. there shouldn't be i learned i learned that it was okay and but it took me a while and i remember at the beginning like the whole papa murphy's thing i was like i could never that's too extravagant i would just feel so judged and like, I even remember like, well, I can't buy popsicles for the kids because that's too extravagant. I need that's, to go buy yeah, mac and cheese extra. or, and I ended up changing. Like I knew, I knew better. At first I was like, I'm only going to buy fresh vegetables yeah. with this. Like that, that, but the, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I will say the nice thing about the whole circumstances, it, it offered a, like a reset. Mm. Yeah. Um, for both the way we spent money and thought about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, cause you, you know, you're on unemployment and broke and you find out what your necessities are and yeah. what you can live without. And you spend a year and a half on that. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, I don't, I don't need any of that. So mm-hmm. we can, get, we, we can make it, you know, and actually even after I got off unemployment for a while, I, even we after I got our- a job, we kept, mm-hmm all of our bills mm-hmm. are the same thing that unemployment would cover yeah, and then yeah. tried, you know, and just kept everything at the same level and then just started putting money away in savings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as God provided a little bit more than we, <laughs> we, you know, spent a little bit more, but yeah. 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 Well, that, I mean, that's such a great, uh, I that's some wisdom, wisdom right there. I think mm-hmm. especially for now, a lot of people, at, mm-hmm. Millions Out of, of people work. on unemployment right yeah. now, like mm-hmm. that. Just a quick little tidbit right there: finances. With Dan <laughs> and that's a that's a great little yeah. Keep your bills the same. Save up a little bit. Like well, yeah, yeah, learn how to last off a little. That's mm-hmm. yeah. And yet, a formula is not going to save you. No, yeah, exactly. it's, yeah. not. it's not. No, because all, yeah, all the plans in the world will, at some point, you know, my dad's lesson of well, property, property and houses. That's what always goes up in value. I mean, that was based off of decades of hmm. what he had seen yeah. since he was young and was actually doing remodeling and in the end it was oddly enough the one thing that failed yeah right <laughs> well, i think even back to pre-2000 of 2008 mm-hmm. right pre-2008 all like uh tv shows and media and, and advice and whatever mm-hmm. you want to finance books talk about investing in, in property i mean i think of the office of all things but <laughs> there's a scene from the office where one of the one of the ladies is like um if you're not invested in property you're an idiot yep mm-hmm. you know? and it's, well i'm not an idiot i better invest in property yeah yeah that's but. and really that was the irony we were kind of like doing the dave ramsey before dave ramsey was really popular mm-hmm. and yeah. we had yeah. you know we had our you know we had a really good nest egg we mm-hmm. had a lot of equity in our house um, it made all the sense in the world on paper mm. and the plan was very sound and we were obedient mm. and yet it didn't turn out the way we had expected. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like, what do you do when you, it's almost like a transaction you have with God. Like, yeah. Hey, mm. I did this yeah. and you didn't give your side that you said you were going to, it's like, wait, no, he never said that. Mm-hmm. So a piece of what I had to learn was I didn't want to miss what the new thing that God was doing because life wasn't going the way I thought it should go. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so you have to switch your perspective 
And instead mm-hmm. of just complaining and complaining and why isn't this happening and why isn't this happening, you have to go through that grieving period. I think that's very normal. But then to be like, what Lord, show me what the new thing is that you're trying to teach me and, and what you want to do. And I think even in this period of the pandemic, I had to remind myself of that this week. Mm-hmm. I was super discouraged about the schools, not, you know, even having hybrid for till November, which we all know it'll probably be longer. Yeah. Um, and just seeing what the kids are going through and the disappointment. Yeah. I had to remind myself of like, okay, Lord, I don't want to miss the new thing that you're wanting to do because life isn't turning out the way that I thought it should. So in that period of time where you weren't able to do the things that you obviously have giftings for mm-hmm. and you obviously are really good at and enjoy, mm-hmm. where did you, what, what did you pull from? Where did you pull, um, I guess, even source of identity, source of, of fulfillness? Um, oh. I honestly had no source. I'll be honest mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. I was stripped down to the point where I remember I was stripped down to the point that I remember just laying on the floor Mm. on my face and being like, I have Mm. nothing. I have my kids. I have the Lord and I have my amazing husband. I'm so grateful for those relationships, but you know, Mm. I ended up getting pregnant with our fourth and we had already been on a journey of loss with our other pregnancies. Mm. And suddenly I was faced with, what I assumed would be another loss. Mm. And then when we realized everything would be fine, they said, you have a 50% mortality rate. You have the same condition that you had with Avery. And we got to the point where I remember the night before I went in for, they had to give me a C-section because they had to have a surgical team ready to be able to give me an emergency surgery um, right after I had her. And they had, they told me they have exactly three minutes from when I give birth to when they do the finish the procedure or else I could bleed out on the table. And I remember looking at, at Dan and I wasn't scared. Mm. It was like, all we have is the Lord. All we have is each other. Mm. I may die tomorrow, yeah. but God is good. Mm. I honestly can say, I feel like that was all I had. Mm. Um, obviously I'm still here. Yeah. Lord <laughs> had another miracle. I can't say that raising four kids didn't scare me. Yeah. <laughs> In my parents' house, mind you. <laughs> Bless my parents again. They're most amazing people on the planet. They are. Um, I will say at that yeah. time, I mean, we, we had made a, an actual conscious choice mm-hmm. to not get back involved in ministry at yeah. church. Yeah. And yeah. to just okay. stay outside of it yep um i think we needed just some uh, some time to just actually mm-hmm. observe from the outside yeah yeah i think we were kind of empty at that time <laughs> we, we were yeah. more than you know, empty. and so yeah. just like we don't <laughs> yeah we don't have the mental capacity or the spiritual capacity at the time to give any more than we have yeah. given mm-hmm. and already and mm-hmm. so we just had to mm. i don't know i, I kind of felt like we were just floating through church for a while it literally felt so. like i had nowhere to land for years. Mm. Um, and then ironically, I got a phone call from our worship leader at the time. And he said, it was like a Thursday, I think. 
And he said, I can't, I need to take a sabbatical. Mm. Can you take over? And I literally went from like sitting at home in my four walls with four kids to having to take on the task of, you know, music director. And um, I did it temporarily. And then eventually he's like, you're it. And Mm. it was interesting to me that I ended up going from a place of drought to actually being brought into a place of ministry that I would have never stepped into otherwise during that period of time. And it Mm. came when I least expected it. Same with working at Simple Pin. It literally fell in my lap because my friend who had started the company, um, her, it was just her and she was doing beta testing and her daughter ended up diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. And she called me up and she's like, I need Mm. help running this while we're getting adjusted to this. And then she asked me to stay. And since then, mm-hmm. the group, the, the, the company has just exploded. And so to see the Lord pour out provision and pour out places where I can express myself um, is overwhelming to me. Like, I can't even tell you when you come from such a deep place of drought for so many years, to then suddenly have him be like, okay, here you go. <laughs> it's, it's like a flood. Side note, you don't need to put this in there, but side note about um, worship leading. Mm. When I was 18, I didn't know where I wanted to go to college. So I was like, oh, I'll go to Multnomah. That's where my brothers went and my dad taught there. So went to Multnomah and um, the music professor there was Dr. Frank Eaton. And I remember he pulled me aside and he said, I really feel like the Lord has given you an anointing to be a worship leader. And I like laughed in his face, like (laughs) old face. I'm like, we do, women do not lead worship. Are you kidding me? Like Darlene Check is the only person on the planet (laughs) who's allowed to lead worship. And that was like fairly new because this was the early nineties. Yeah. Women Mm. were not supposed to lead worship. Hmm. And um, I remember hmm. he said, well, you can either take my classes or I'll take your music scholarship away. Oh. So <laughs> I was the only girl in my classes, took all my little, he trained me and it was awesome. Hmm. And then I ended up transferring and getting my music degree at a different school because I wanted my bachelor's in music and they didn't offer that at the time. And I didn't think anything about those two years that I was trained by him again, Mm. like never even crossed my mind. And then you fast forward and this, all of a sudden I'm back, you know, lead, I'm up leading worship. I could have never, if you would have told me that when I was 18, (laughs) that when I was, you know, in my forties, I would end up being like the main worship leader and like being the worship director. I would have been like, whatever. (laughs) But the Lord saw that. Yeah. He knew that he had me trained way before I needed it. Mm. And then I had all of my music experience that felt that, that, that fed into that, but just how awesome God is in seeing the big picture. Mm-hmm. And then I go through this mm-hmm. drought of like, I have no ministry. I'm not, I'm, I mean, I really struggled with like, I'm worthless. I can't do mm-hmm. anything at church. Like, this is so awful. I can't do any of my, my giftings um, to literally pouring out a ministry mm-hmm. that I absolutely adore and mm-hmm. could not even imagine doing. So it's just cool mm-hmm. how he does that. It That's is. All. Huh. 
especially as like a pastor's kid, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not doing ministry in the church, yeah. are you actually a Christian? No, you're obviously <laughs> are you actually not, son. <laughs> like, like that, that's, that's the pressure that's there. It is. Yeah. It, 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 it's real. It's, yeah. It is. It's constant. It's real. Um, yeah. It, you mm. feel like a failure, honestly. Mm. Mm. So I get it. I get you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Because we talked about how, as Americans, we find our yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of times we find our our identi- like our main purpose in our work. Mm-hmm. So we could we could hit on that again, right? Is that kind of what we're yeah. about? Which yeah. you know, I guess you can take to the extreme of, you know, if I'm not being acknowledged for the job that I'm doing here, because yeah. you hired me for this position, so therefore I am this. If you aren't giving me the type of work or the type of mm. recognition that goes with this, then, then all, it's like all of a sudden, like, wh- why am I here? Why, why am I yeah. doing this? It's like, you know, being a builder and then having to go and clean toilets. You're like, wait a minute. Mm. My job is building houses. Why am I cleaning toilets? This is way below mm. my paid grade, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, or, um, not getting a pat on the back when you do a good job or, some kind of monetary mm-hmm. bonus to show that we appreciate you. And those are nice, but when it actually makes, I mean, affects you emotionally to where mm. you get depressed because you're not getting those things that build your ego you feel up like you're entitled and to. make you yeah. feel like mm-hmm. they appreciate me. This is where yeah. I, I should be. Otherwise, I should look for something else where someone appreciates me more, which I don't quite mm. understand that. I... My, my dad had me when I was in college try everything. He said, take as many classes as you possibly can, all of them different, and just mm-hmm. get a feel for everything you possibly can to see what you like. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Mm-hmm. And construction started the same way. At 16, it wasn't, well, you're going to, this is what you're going to get into. It was just, let's just do this as a, as a family. Yeah. Um, so we tried that, went to school for a little bit to fire for fire science to become a fireman. You would have been um, a really wow. hot fireman. I thought, you know, I could do that two days on, <laughs> on you know, record. one day on and then contracting two days off. But I mean, it wasn't, yeah. I went into construction because I actually enjoyed it. It was a creative outlet mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. um, my project changes. I don't do the same yeah. routine yeah. every day. It's like every, every project's different. Everything that I do on a project is different. And then it all gets wrapped up within, you know, three months or whatever, and I'm done, and I move on to the next one. Well, that's a good comment on um, we expect those things from our managers. We expect those um, not to be able to, you know, once you get to a certain spot, you don't do that job anymore because that's for someone else. I mean, I think we... Climb the ladder. We climb, yeah, yeah it's the whole climb the ladder mm-hmm. mentality. And uh, knowing HR a little bit about, about that as I work in some HR stuff, it's, that's kind of what you do is it? Mm-hmm. For, first of all, you know, when you have employees, you make sure that they're you know, encouraged, and that's a good thing. But, you know, uh, once they reach a certain level, they don't do the lower level stuff because it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the climb the ladder mentality. Yeah. And um, I, it's because I, I work at the church we all go to, mm-hmm. Monteville Church. And um, Randy uh, is he's my boss. He's my supervisor <laughs> there, as well as, well as Dwight. Um, and I remember when I first got hired or when I searched in my interview with Randy, he said, um, so you'd be doing, you know, IT stuff, you know, and there's other projects and stuff I'll probably have you do, but you need to be okay with plunging a toilet as yep. well. Yep. <laughs> That's <laughs> the truth. 
and that was so different from anything I'd ever heard before mm-hmm. because you know like when I was at Starbucks it was okay you know um yeah, I'm, I'm a, I started off as a barista and they wanted me to be a shift supervisor. And when I became shift supervisor, I wouldn't be, um, you know, stocking cups anymore, but I would be managing the schedule. But I never would have to do that stuff because that's what the baristas did. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Right. And like if you had to do cups, all of a sudden it was like you're taking a step down now. Yeah. I was like, what? Well, I, 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 I don't have to I do thought, this. Yeah, I thought mm-hmm. it was higher I'm than this. Yeah. Than you this. Know, what? <laughs> I worked for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have seniority. I also think right now I've I've had some friends that have commented on the fact that it's really hard since most jobs you're having to work at home mm-hmm. that suddenly don't, they don't feel motivated to do their work because they aren't in the office environment where they feel mm-hmm. like they're being appreciated or seen for what they do. And I'm like, uh, I've been working from home for six years. Y'all yeah. welcome to my <laughs> world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that I think that's a good thing for people to kind of check yeah Yeah, that self-starting attitude that some of us just kind of have innately or have because we've had experience with it i never thought of that people Uh might not have that yeah that's interesting wow i've had a few friends comment on like it's just Hmm. not like it it's motivating i'm like oof okay <laughs> validation in your work i think mm-hmm. that kind of ties into identity right there right. a little yeah. Yeah. A, lot. a lot yeah is that we need to be validated in what we do as mm-hmm. well as recognized for what we do and mm-hmm. all that yeah and like if you have a manager or a boss that's never telling you that you did a good job like that's not good that's not good yeah no. right but you shouldn't be going to work for that purpose right. like to get filled up by someone you like know? dan yeah. said when it affects your emotional state to the point where you're yeah. depressed or you're taking it out on your family right mm-hmm. to check it you're yeah. looking for exactly. another job because you don't feel like they're appreciating you and i think is status the right word because mm-hmm. i feel like there's a status that right. you yeah. know, when people talk about like they have a job mm-hmm. you know you're not you're gonna say oh i i work at this company right. you know and i'm i'm at this position you know compared to like oh i work at mcdonald's flipping burgers right and neither of those i'm gonna say are better or worse honestly because mm-hmm. i'm i don't believe one's better or worse it just yeah. depends on what you want to do what your situation is but we right. we, we think oh a ceo of a company is going to be so much so much better of a person than someone right. that's flipping birds at mcdonald's right. and because mm-hmm. of the, the status thing at plants mm-hmm. i mean i've met some great people that are baristas or <laughs> flip burgers you know and and i have met a few ceos and and um one was actually really cool the others were i didn't Not like so, so <laughs> as people if i'm being honest yeah yeah god will provide no just that's a good that. wrap i was gonna say well, a good wrap up you know yeah instead of you know me doing that doing that check i guess yeah. maybe is a good way yeah. to put it doing yeah. that self-check and saying where am i putting um a majority of my identity where am mm-hmm. i putting majority of my um where i find myself where i find my purpose right. is that in my work is it in right. something else is it you know or is it in do christ I trust do i trust myself more as a provider or do i trust god Ooh, yeah that's yeah yeah oh, that's good i like that's that really good i think the other piece about just with where we're at in general is that ask the lord to show you the new thing that he's doing because right now everything is turned upside down and I don't want to miss out on what he's doing around me. Because so it's not going to be what we expect. And that actually is exciting to me. Doesn't mean I don't get sad. I miss people. <laughs> it's the most socializing I've done in a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say, as a, as a married man, it's always a plus when whatever you are trusting 
God to do if you feel like he's leading you into something, that, sh- that your wife's on the same page. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or that you both have been praying about the same thing so that you mm-hmm. both can agree on it. Because um, mm-hmm. having a spouse that doesn't agree with mm-hmm. where you're going or where mm-hmm. you feel like you've been led is, is kind of tough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. You were so patient That's with me. a good me. word. Thank you. well thank you guys so much for for being willing to come on and share a very personal story (laughs) we're happy to yeah we don't take it lightly and I don't think our listeners were either I mean it's yeah hope it's helpful I mean for me already it has been like even with our conversations before this and Mm -hmm. just talking about this episode I just it's like you know checking my own life already so this is yeah yeah, it's it's been very that's awesome thank you yeah yeah thank you guys so much